Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Ronan Farrow is something of a phenomenon. He comes from one of the most uh, prominent and well-covered families in American society. He went to college at 11, law school at 18, and in between as a teenager, he became a global youth ambassador for UNICEF in some of the most troubled parts of Africa. He went on to serve in the State Department in the Obama administration, and now as a journalist just collected the Pulitzer Prize at the age of 30 for his intrepid reporting on Harvey Weinstein that ended Weinstein's career and touched off the Me Too movement. I sat down with Ronan the day after he collected the Pulitzer to talk about the extraordinary life he's already lived. Ronan Farrow, it's really good to see you again. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Um, I want to talk to you about your own story, which is too crazy to... It's a little actually, crazier than I'd like, David. Crazier than... Yeah, well, I mean, it's stranger than fiction. You couldn't make this up. Uh, and it's a great story. I mean, what you've done is fantastic. I should point out that we're getting together the day after you received the Pulitzer Prize which I, I have mixed feelings about having been in journalism in my life, that you've collected this in your 30th year. Actually, one of my editors is the great David Rode, who was yeah, famously sure. kidnapped in both Bosnia and then in Pakistan, who was one of my Yorker, yeah. reporting heroes for years and years. Uh, and he did win it younger than me. <laughs> uh-huh. he, he won it, I think, in his late 20s. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, what's... This is good because you want to get the Pulitzer out of the way and start, you know, work on the Nobel Prize. Uh, they don't you, have a you Nobel gotta get, in journalism. You got to, you got to get it done. Well, you got to have to figure Plus out the, a way, man. You got to get Nobel it done by the time to, you're to forty. Donald Trump, David. I mean, come on. Yes, I know. So he says, "We shall see." We'll talk about that later. But I want to talk because I want to talk about uh, your new book, uh, which goes very much to uh, diplomacy in the world or lack thereof. It does. Um, and I obviously want to talk to you about the story for which you won the Pulitzer Prize, which is the Harvey Weinstein story and the movement that it it spawned. But let's let's start with your story, um, uh, because you you know everyone sort of knows part of it. You're born into a really prominent family. The Farrow family alone uh, is a prominent family. Uh, talk about your your grandparents. Yeah, uh, very few people ask about the grandparents, but my grandmother was uh, Maureen O'Sullivan, who was Jane in the Tarzan movies, one of the first big Irish-American movie stars and part of the you know stable of MGM stars back when they were contract players. So yeah. this, this business of freelance actors paying, hauling in these big paychecks and um, doing whatever projects they please was, of course, not the business model back then. She did you know something like 20 movies a year had no choice in the matter. Yeah. Uh, and she's therefore on you know, Turner Classic Movies just all the time because they were so prolific. And did you have a relationship with her? or Was she... Yeah, growing up, um, you know, I can't recall what age I would have been, maybe 12 or something when she passed. Um, but uh, she was great. She was a, you know, a raconteuse, like, knew her way around a great story, uh, drank heavily for many years. Um, you know, the classic, magical Irish grandmother. And... Uh, she uh, was someone that I wished I had gotten to know better as an adult. You know, there were these incredible people in the, the background, including my um, my grandfather, her husband, yes. John Farrow, yes. who was an Academy Award-winning writer-director. He wrote Around the World in 80 Days, um, and, you know, they fell in love on the set of one of these Tarzan movies that he was directing. And uh, he was kind of a, a rough character. I mean, he, he led... A, 
sort of oh, yeah. rascalian life. Womanizer and I think, you know, ran away from a home, which was Australia. He was like raised back when Australia was still a penal colony and he sailed the South Pacific and wrote, I think, the first French-English Tahitian dictionary um, and also a like a well-regarded <laughs> scholarly biography of Damien of Molokai, who, you know, cared for the lepers there. Um, so he was a very eclectic yeah. guy. So you come by some of this naturally. Or, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, I was far able flung to watch, at pursuits. Yeah, some interesting people. And there. your and your mom obviously is Mia Farrow, who uh, a, a, a fine actress in her own right. Yeah, and and also eclectic. You know, one of the best read people that I know. Mm-hmm. And and an incredible spirit of public service. So we have to get this out of the way. Your birth certificate says your dad is Woody Allen. There's all this speculation, some of which your mom contributed to as to whether that is actually the case the whole Frank Sinatra thing I I figure you're sick of answering that question I am David yes I know (laughs) know. so I'm going to leave it at this either your dad was Frank Sinatra or you're the luckiest guy on the planet (laughs) and just wound up looking like him and not Woody Allen thank you I'll take that as a compliment (laughs) Um, but your dad was Woody Allen, at least as the the record will show that he was mm-hmm. and is. Um, yeah, which is important, you know, legally and ethically, um, you know, because you're dealing with a guy who has basically said it's, you know, it's acceptable to, uh, you know, marry your son's sister, um, you know, because they're, they're adopted. Uh, right. And by the same token, part of his response to, you know, my sister's allegations uh, against him, which are very, very credible. Um, you know, I, I reluctantly came to that realization, but it's really inescapable when you review the evidence. Uh, has It's been entwined with this suggestion that basically if there aren't biological ties, you know, it's not a family, uh, which was not at all the framework I grew up in. You know, I grew up with a lot of adopted siblings. I think adopted kids everywhere would object you? to is that. that. Yeah, yeah. Which is, is incredible. I want to get to that in, in, in a second, but you, uh, the, the, you, you, this issue about uh, the molestation, I guess you would say the alleged molestation, but mm-hmm. uh, of your sister by uh, Woody Allen, uh, that happened when you were four years old. Uh, no, I mean, this, this grooming behavior was all the way through and basically as long as he had access to her. Um, and I, I would have to go back and look at the last contact. I guess my, my point is just this. You never, re- you, you, he was estranged from your mom, almost from your earliest record uh no i don't think that's right i mean he was never like bad-mouthed in our home um i was actually i was sort of the sacrificial lamb where uh, courts always kept him away from my sister because there was just such overwhelming evidence you look at this new york custody um decision uh the judge in that just wrote this scathing decision saying you know he needs to be protected she needs to be protected uh you know there's something like a phrase i think grotesque behavior with respect to children um uh, there were always these, thank God, legal protections that kept him from her after this. But I was sort of the pawn that ended up um, in visitations for years and years. So, so we had a. So what was that like? Um, fine, you know, he was never abusive towards me, and because of that, and I think because my mom was so meticulously careful about never bad mouthing him or kind of exposing us to any of this stuff, I really had to form my judgments about it as an adult. Um, and then, you know, once I, I interviewed my sister about it, basically because she, I think, felt that I had let her down, that I had avoided this issue for so long, um, and had been able to dispose of it with a joke, as so many people do when this issue affects their families. I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of survivors of sexual violence and their siblings. Um, you know, I just wanted it to go away and, and knew intuitively that obviously she was telling the truth, um, because I, I know her to be a truthful person. And look, there's just no body of literature that suggests this idea that there are Manchurian candidate 30-year-old women who have you know, implanted memories. It's just not a thing. Um, she's always been consistent in her story. But I was able to avoid it for years and years. And, and then it was, it was in finally sitting and reviewing the evidence and talking to her that I, I realized, you know, holy moly, this is, this is real. Um, and that I did have an ethical obligation to, when called upon to speak on it, say, yeah, it appears there's, the evidence is there. How much did that experience uh, uh, drive you in your reporting on Harvey Weinstein? Well, it, you know, it, what it, 
it, there was no direct factual link, but what it did expose me to was the um, the viciousness with which powerful men can retaliate against women with allegations against them. I mean, my sister has been the subject of years and years of smear campaigns. Um, my mom was very often the target of those. It's much easier to, by proxy, attack a mother. It's the, the oldest and uh, least credible kind of trope that you run into in these kinds of responses to child molestation allegations. Um, and uh, you know, what I saw is the ability of a certain echelon of wealthy and powerful person to manipulate press coverage. You know, he has one of the most powerful PR people in the country, this Leslie Dart, who is famously, if you want, sort of an amoral PR person who will represent a child molester and smear women and attack them, you go to Leslie Dart. And she's got, you know, Will Smith and Meryl Streep, so she can really... Um, I've seen this happen. You're not I, suggesting they're in that category. No, not at all. I'm saying that if you if you want someone who says, I will do anything for you, you hire this woman, mm-hmm. Leslie Dart. Um, and it's really shocking. I've been forwarded you know, the emails when she's planting these, these stories, trying to basically destroy women. Um, and there is that category of PR person you can hire. Obviously, you know, in the same category, there's the people that Weinstein worked with. Um, similarly, you can manipulate the, the criminal justice system. Uh, you know, Woody Allen did, I didn't really realize this until after the Weinstein reporting, how close the parallels were. He had private investigators digging through the trashes of the cops on the case. Uh, there was a New York uh, social worker who determined abuse had taken place and then got an order from the mayor's office in New York to halt the, the proceedings um, and change his findings. This happens over and over again when powerful men get accused of this sort of thing. You're working on a new book now, right? Yeah. And it involves this issue. It's this very set of systems. And, you know, I I guess that wasn't as much on my mind during the Weinstein uh, matter, except in that I knew that I had, you know, a woman close to me who had been through this kind of smear campaign and targeting. And and still is today. You know, she's incredibly brave and strong, as is my mother. And they will weaponize everything and anything against them. You know, pay people off to lie. It's it's unbelievable. And so dealing with women who everyone else said were, you know, paranoid. Um, you know, it seemed insane when they were saying we're being followed, we're being lied about. Uh, you know, and I sat in rooms full of executives who said, you know, okay, you know, girls like that, you know, say these things all the time, referring to these grown women with allegations against Harvey Weinstein. Um, I knew that actually there is a, a cloak and dagger universe of the tactics deployed by a certain kind of powerful guy. Uh, I guess I knew that intuitively because of that background. You, uh, you mentioned the, uh, your, all your siblings, um, and you also re- referred to the fact that he ended up marrying one of your siblings. Yeah. And, and how, how did you process that as a, as a youngster? Uh, I mean, it, it always very clearly seemed off to me, you know, and and I guess I took solace as so many of his fans who are very, look, people don't like having their idols torn down, and they get just viciously angry about this. People are enraged at my sister, um, and I think by proxy, there's a certain kind of guy who is worshipful of the targets of these investigations and is enraged at women coming forward in general. I see a lot of that directed at me by proxy. Um, you know, for me, I had the same reaction a lot of them had initially, which was, okay, so he, you know, he married my sister, and that's not cool, and certainly there's all this evidence that there's a pattern of fixation on underage girls, um, and it's a tremendously destructive thing to do in a family for a father to be, you know, I can't think of a more advances. destructive Right, thing. I mean, you have a family, obviously, right. you know, it's, it's not something a father would, would do, making sexual advances on the daughters. Um, but I guess I tried to write it off as, you know, okay, it's... It, there's that problem, and then separately there's, you know, my sister's allegation that he also went after her at a, a younger age and and was able for a while to compartmentalize and ignore this this other allegation. But it really is part and parcel with the same pattern of fixation on underage girls. And obviously the, you know, the Washington Post did this expose recently where they went through all of his private documents, which I think are at Princeton, and it's just, it's all over them. I mean, it's, they're terrifyingly creepy <laughs> things to read. So you're sitting here and you're speaking really clinically about this, but it's your life. Yeah, but the, you know, the saving grace of my having been younger is I, it is something that I was able to approach independently as an adult. And I desperately wished that I could have, you know, taken the offer when Woody Allen said, okay, I'll only pay for your college education if you lie about your mom. Um, you know, th- there have been all these beats where I had the choice. And 
it's a tough thing. Wait, did that, that happen? Yeah, that happened. Um, you know, and I've said that publicly in a statement now, so that's, that's not news. Uh, but it was very clearly, you know, he would sort of stalk my sister. She was terrified of him and she'd be, uh, you know, not registered on any, under any specific name at school, trying to get away from him. And he'd send shoeboxes full of pictures of him with her. And she'd just, you know, call sobbing saying, he found me, he found me. Um, like deeply creepy behavior. And he'd send her letters saying, you know, I'm waiting with open arms. And she'd be terrified. Um, and yet you still went for visitations. Well, only because it was involuntary. I, uh, you know, that was when I was younger. These letters and the stalking of my sister continued for mm-hmm. years. Uh, but at the same time, sometimes he would send me kind of parallel letters saying, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm here, you know, if you want to come over to my side, essentially. It's this very destructive tactic in a family to have that hanging over uh, everyone, you know, that I will support you, but only if you turn on your mother. So um, you went to college at the age of 11 to Bard College, and it strikes me reading your history that you weren't a kid for very long. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was a kid, but I was also a big nerd, and I needed to be doing like above grade level work or I was bored and then but you know, you know the, there are, there, there, you, you, there's the intellectual growth that one has and yours was obviously quite advanced and then there's just the emotional thing yeah, like 11 year olds are 11 year olds you know <laughs> you'll have to be the judge as to whether I, I you know I'll let you emotional. know at the end of the hour yeah exactly you tell me um, yeah no I think like whatever social dysfunction I have is probably uh, you know lingering from my Duke what was it like years. to be an 11 year old on a college campus it was great for me. So, you know, I, I made the decision between a small liberal arts college, uh, Bard, mm-hmm. and larger schools and had wonderful opportunities to go to kind of more marquee name schools. And I think correctly, I decided, and, you know, I was 11 at the time, so my mom was a part of this decision, uh, that a small school would be a, a lifeline where I was never going to fall through the cracks and I could have friendships with, you know, these older kids, but they would be sort of protective and like big brothers and sisters. And it really did pan out that way. It was very kind of nurturing. I, I was on campus, but living in a professor's house uh, for the last two years of it. I actually, God bless her, my mom drove me to class a lot for the first two years. And, uh, and I kind of used that maxim all the way through. I, I went to a very small law school. Um, you know, the scholarship I did in England was also tiny. So the, law, the small law school was Yale. <laughs> the small law school was Yale. Okay. But it is, a, it is a small school. It's a fraction but, of the size of Harvard. But, uh, but I guess I'm wondering, like, I remember what I was like as a college student and what I was doing as a college student. And I presume you weren't doing the things I was doing, which I'm not going to enumerate here, when you were 11 years old. So, like, just the social thing was must have been odd because they were at a different they were thinking about different things i presume at yeah i got in my keg stands later you know i was 18 (laughs) uh i I took two years off after i got into yale law so i was able to start when i was roughly the age of the undergrads at yale so i was able to have those two social lives the uh, in between uh, you got into Yale when you were 16 years old and in between you did a stint as a as an intern a speech writing intern uh, in the John Kerry campaign for Richard Holbrook mm-hmm. who's a central figure in your book which we, and in your life yeah which we will talk about uh, were you always a, was writing always something that you uh, did well I mean, there again, like, you, you tell me based on the book. I, I always thought I've read that enough, I, could, I can assert that. Thank you. Know. I, look, I, I, I can tell stories, and it uh, always felt to me that that was, uh, you know, a, a power that carried some responsibility with it, not to lapse into, like, Spider-Man dialogue. But, but uh, I, I was raised with a lot of people who, you know, couldn't, write or tell stories in that way. Um, you know, a, a lot of my siblings struggle with severe backgrounds of trauma um, and both Your physical mom and ad- mental disability. Your adopted many of them from around the world. Yes. Now, some of them had disabilities. Yes, and, and it was a struggle just for them to, to get through school. And I think, you know, m- our family is something I'm tremendously proud of. It's also, like, it was never going to look like the perfect nuclear family. You know, some people, um, just through sheer dint of incredible parenting, were able to pull out of those backgrounds of trauma and disability and and some were not you know and um that's devastating but it really 
made me acquainted early on with how fortunate I was to have the ability to maybe make a difference um, where what so many made, of my siblings what, what, what were struggling to get through the did, day. How, what did having siblings who were struggling, how did that uh, fo- help formulate who you are? Well, it was impossible to ignore the world's problems because my brothers and sisters, the people I loved most, were refugees, essentially. You know, they, my mom adopted um, older and she adopted disabled and she really specifically, I think because of some deeply ingrained Catholicism that she carried with her still, um, you know, even after her years of being a hippie, she uh, realized that these were men and women that the world had kind of left behind and would never get adopted otherwise. And, you know, you see the consequences of that. Like, definitely, you know, I've, my siblings have struggled with, you know, um, all sorts of things that have been really difficult for the family. And I guess what that ingrained in me was a real knowledge that the world is a difficult place and your passport into the world of the healthy and the living, it can be taken away at any time. And not everyone has that passport in the first place. Your mom became an ambassador for UNICEF, and uh, you, uh, you through her, she would take you on the road, and you became a, a kind of a youth uh, uh, spokesman for UNICEF at, at like 14 years old. Um, and you spent a lot of time, particularly in Africa, Darfur, and so on, as a, as a teenager. Um, talk about those experiences. Um, I was very fortunate to see a lot of places where, um, you know, the problems that I came to care about and focus on in my work were playing out firsthand. So the time I spent in Sudan, for instance, a lot of that ended up resulting in op-ed columns that I was writing for the Wall Street Journal and other places about sexual violence as a tool of war. And many of the stories that I was telling in that context were direct mirror images of the stories that I ultimately told about Harvey Weinstein's accusers. And I guess all of this gave me a sense of obligation to do as much as I could because I saw um, how much these voices needed to be elevated. And if I had any shred of ability to make a tiny difference to put a spotlight on that stuff, it it felt like one of the few ways that I could maybe be useful. You also... uh made some sacrifice yourself because you got quite ill. I did, yeah. I mean, I this was a, a medical problem that went untreated for a long time, partly because I was traveling. Bone marrow and some infection. Of these yeah, yeah staph aureus in the, the bone. It'll get you every time. Um, but, you know, that, that was something that would have been perhaps treated better. I mean, look, you can go back and game out whether complications could have been prevented or not, and you never know. But um, it was a period where... I carried on with all of this other stuff in my life, and I was, you know, testifying before the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, and I was traveling in these African countries. And Still a teenager. Yeah, and I did come back and get it checked out, but, it, you know, through whatever combination of doctors not catching it and me being on the road, it, it turned into years and years of me being in a wheelchair and on crutches. Wow, you were in law school. Yeah, it, there's, you look back at my <laughs> early law school pictures, and I've got these, you know, hammer pants on over, uh, you know, my uh, my broken, busted up legs, uh, which was, you know, an odd symmetry having grown up with uh, siblings who struggled to walk, among other things. Mm-hmm. Um, why'd you go to law school? You, you obviously were interested in writing. Um, I, I don't know that I ever thought that I wanted to practice black letter law, but I thought that it would be a useful education. I mean, I think it's very often the refuge of people who don't know exactly what they want to do. And Yale Law is the perfect place to uh, uh, not be a lawyer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I had a wonderful time there. It was the most intellectually lively group of people I've ever been exposed to. Um, it is like a Montessori school-style environment where people kind of sit around and sing kumbaya and you know study human rights and international law and legal theory and um, have no idea how to pass the bar when they finally get to it. Uh, it's one of the most extraordinary educational institutions we have. I was really lucky to be there. And when you got out, you, you reunited with, uh, with Holbrook. Um, it, it, you, you write a little bit about this in, in, uh, in your book, but uh, uh, you had sort of a, an unusual uh, interview for this, uh, 
job. He was coming with Secretary Clinton into the Obama administration to run essentially an AFPAC group uh, and try and impact on the yeah. situation Af- 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 in Afghanistan through the through diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so t- you talked about like the serial interview that started in one place and ended up with you standing there outside the bathroom yeah. while he was showering and continuing to ask you questions. Talk a little bit about Holbrook himself as a character. I mean, because Hol- he really was a larger he than was life larger character. Larger than life, which is the phrase everyone always uses, returns to with him. Uh, he was, you know, famously a jerk. He burnt bridges everywhere, really sharp elbows, big ego, but was fiercely loyal to the people that he mentored, and that was true of everyone on that Afghanistan and Pakistan team. He was a great example of how you can be establishment, I think, and still, you know, because he was a foreign service officer going back to his 20s, and still welcome new ideas that shake up the old order. He assembled a team of kind of nonconformist, often non-government types from different sectors, and academics and business people and um, he really wanted to break through the old school thinking that I, I think had locked our military conflicts into one path of escalation. You know, you so say, I, I'm sure that's right. And I had conversations with him myself uh, when I was working for President Obama that I'll talk about in a second. But in certain ways, he struck me also as a throwback to the days of the kind of swashbuckling diplomats. And uh, this was part of the larger than life thing. I mean, he had a history that went back to Vietnam. Yeah. And, um, uh, and he, you know, famously brokered uh, the Bosnia uh, peace treaty, the Dayton Accord. I mean, he was, uh, he was someone who, who really believed deeply in diplomacy and in diplomats and the power of diplomats. He did. He earnestly believed in public service. He earnestly believed in the power of of the United States to make peace and not just war and the importance of deals of the kind that he cut, which were imperfect as the Dayton Peace Accord was, um, but which could avert warfare and and bloodshed. Um, And he, you know, found himself at odds with the Obama administration, and I know he had conversations with you in those final days. I saw him on the day he died. I think he left my office and went to the State Department. Yes, and uh, he was begging at that point for an audience with that was the su- That was the meeting. You, you write about this, and um, there was th- that whole process of dealing with Afghanistan was, uh, is there a military solution uh, to this, uh, or does it ultimately require a diplomatic solution? Mm-hmm. He was very much of a mind that while the military had a role to play in terms of setting up the possibilities that this couldn't be resolved without uh, a diplomatic solution. And he came that day to uh, read me into some of the stuff he, he was doing and to argue that he wanted to get in front of the president to make that case. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the sense inside that operation that did you, I mean, you get a, uh, you get a sense of it in this book, War on Peace, but it, it felt like you guys felt like you were fighting a, a losing battle. I mean, what was your take on that? You, you were at the receiving end of his pleas. Um, and I, I think there were a lot of, you know, legitimate reasons why Barack Obama didn't get along with Richard Holbrook. Um, but also I do think that the environment had changed and this idea of the celebrity diplomat was no longer welcome. And I know, you know, Ben Rhodes and a few other administration figures who spoke in this book did kind of give a mea culpa and say, look, we um, were in the thrall of these kind of celebrity generals at that point, yes. and there wasn't as much room for... Well, I don't know if it works. was the thrall, uh, but um, there are all kinds of complicated... Uh, dynamics uh, when you're trying to work through a major policy involving uh, an ongoing war and how to resolve it. And the president was eager to to uh, resolve it and bring troops home uh, and, uh, you know, work through this very complicated you know, set of meetings. And yet they home. escalated in the end. In order, exactly in order, in, what the generals wanted. They escalated. And in ex- in exchange for putting a timeline on 
on bringing the troops Which out. was the one thing that the diplomats, every last one of them, said would be a disaster because mm-hmm. you surrender all of your power to bring anyone to the table if they know you can wait the thing out. And he felt that was the death knell for negotiations. When he came, uh, yeah, no, I, you, you say, what do I think? I, yeah. th- I think that Holbrook was a, a, a uh, was a palpably brilliant guy. Um, he was, uh, by the way, very, very shrewd about playing um, the environment. You know, when people came after him, I remember him talking about one administration figure who, who went after him in the press and he said he doesn't know who he's messing around with and shortly thereafter stories started appearing that were devastating to the person he was talking <laughs> about and I had no doubt where uh, those came from but he he was uh, also a guy who rubbed people the wrong way he did and it made it I think he hurt himself in, in that regard he was his own worst enemy um, but I do think that his freeze out is illustrative of the way in which our foreign policy has transformed and not always for the better. I mean, I, I do sense that there was a course correction in the second Obama administration. Well, there was a lot of diplomatic action, Iran, Cuba, mm-hmm. the Paris Accord. Uh, but do, do you regret the approach towards diplomacy in that first term? Um you know, I, I like probably uh, everyone you spoke to would tell you the same thing, which is, you know, we came into a situation where we had two wars uh, going, 180,000 troops uh, engaged overseas, and our uh, focus was on how to wind those uh, wars down while we were dealing with an economic crisis. And, um, you know, I, I never had the sense that the president didn't believe in the power of diplomacy. I know. Uh, that he did. I think one of the critiques in your book is that um, a lot of the decision making was centralized in the White House and mm-hmm. not at the State Department. And and that's been a critique that we, you know, the Defense Department, by the way, had this, you know, Gates had the same uh, criticism that there were too many, the president's aides were uh, too much uh, in control of these uh, of these decisions. But I didn't have the sense that um, there was a lack of commitment to diplomacy. I had the sense that there was a lack of bandwidth uh, to pursue uh, all of the avenues that he wanted to pursue. Um, and I found Holbrook's when he came to me on the day that he died. I found his 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 presentation to me, even as he was clearly not feeling well, mm-hmm. was passionate and compelling. Um, you could tell that. He was in bad Oh, shape. there's no doubt. In fact, uh, Eric Lesser, now a state senator in Massachusetts, was my uh, assistant. And he, I remember him uh, saying, Ambassador, can I get you some water? Can I? Because he looks so bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mentioned that in the book. Yeah. The so um, so he yeah, I there was no doubt that he was he was not well, but he was also I mean, you could sense the urgency that he felt. And, you know, the problem is you have to separate out um the cause and the mission that he came on and his own needs, uh, you know, as a guy of substantial. uh, Well, I guess what I, and I, and the the book is not a Holbrook hagiography. I mean, as you, as you see, it's um, very critical of Holbrook and, and very forthright about his ego and his Mm -hmm. problems with navigating the politics of that administration, which were often of his own making. But, I do think history has vindicated many of the, th- the arguments that he was making. Mm-hmm. If you had it to do over, would you have gotten him that audience with the president? Yeah, I never had a chance to uh, have the discussion because uh, later that day he collapsed. Um, well, he had been asking for... No, I understand that. No, I understand that. But he came to me because it was, you know, he was working all the channels. I, I, I certainly would have taken the case to to him and the national security people whether they would have whether that it would have wound up that way uh i don't know um why do you think there were these diplomatic victories in the second term and not the first i think partly because there was the room to do them uh you know remember we were losing eight hundred thousand jobs a month when the president arrived that was Mm -hmm. central 
to uh, his uh, to his uh, mission at that moment. Uh, as I said, the wars were raging, and so some of these things there simply wasn't the 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 the, the bandwidth to deal with some of these. He was quite clear on the things that he wanted to work on, uh, many of which evolved in the second term, but. You know, there there is there is a pipeline in an administration, and you can't you if you if it gets too clogged, you you can't do anything. So I mean, one of the contrasts that I found striking was uh, I was only at state under Hillary Clinton, but certainly Hillary Clinton's approach to that job was very different from John Kerry's, and John Kerry did seem to pursue a more kind of autonomous um, set of diplomatic missions than Clinton, who was... Why do you think that was? Do you think that was at the instance of the president? Or do you think it was a difference in their own personalities? I mean, I, I got the clear sense, at least through the, viewing this through the lens of the Afghanistan review in the first term, that it was a result of um, her focus on political expedience and um, also probably her, her longtime sincere uh, set of convictions as you know a, a foreign policy hawk. I mean, she at every point was lockstep with... Mm-hmm. Gates. Uh, and- with Gates and... Mm-hmm. and and uh, the she's very cautious, and, uh, and and Kerry at that stage in his career was uh, willing to take and eager to take risks uh, for uh, diplomacy. Let me just finish out this part of the discussion because I want to go back to your journey, and I don't want I, I want to and I want to talk more about the Weinstein case, but um, talk about where we are now. Um, you spent a couple of years at the State Department, um, and uh, you know it's been uh, quite a story since this president became president. Both uh, sort of his own improvisational approach to the world, and his America First approach to the world, and uh, the strange way in which the State Department has been managed and marginalized. Uh, what are the impacts of all of that? I think we're dealing with a hobbled diplomatic apparatus right now, and I think that still is actively harming our foothold in conflicts around the world where we need to exert influence. Um, You look at our approach to North Korea of late, and it's pretty close to the worst-case scenario. Um, We have sent a devastating signal to the regime in Pyongyang, through our withdrawal from the Iran deal. Uh, Any rogue regime that we're trying to bring to the table uh, to cut some kind of a deal with that will entail compromise and look imperfect, but also maybe save us all from annihilation, um, now has significant reason to question whether the United States will Uh, hold to its commitments. I I agree with that, though um, they do seem eager to come to the table. I mean, we can argue as to whether they they may... uh, Just the... the, the fact of a meeting with the President of the United States is a major... Well, but, uh, you know, and we've seen the ups and downs in, in the lead-up to that potential meeting. Um, and what I lay out in the book is the way in which the long-fraught history of diplomacy with North Korea teaches us you need experts there to tell yeah. you... No, that's this absolutely is, This is case. what they're going to lie about. These are the pitfalls. This is what they want you to say to legitimize them as a nuclear power. And... Uh, what I know from talking to people around those conversations right now is that there is simply a void where that expertise once lay in our government. And, and, and in other areas as well, you talk about Ambassador uh, a Countryman and his wor- work on uh, nonproliferation. I mean, he was yes. an expert on this. This was his cause. Uh, and he was summarily dismissed. He was part of a wave of firings when the Trump administration came in, which was really quite unprecedented. Tom Countryman was, uh, you know, not a uh, partisan political appointee. He was a career foreign service officer who served under administrations of both parties and um, was, at the time of his firing, our top technical official on arms control. Mm -hmm. And at a time at which officials... Be be kind of a useful thing right now. Right, it turns out. And I had people like, you know, Brian Hook, um, who's quoted in there, uh, saying to me, this is our top priority. Uh, But at the same time, this administration was letting go of the resources we needed most in that area. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge concern, the, the sort of the, the hollowing out of the kind of infrastructure of 
uh, not you know expertise in um, uh, in particular technical areas, but expertise in the world. Mm-hmm. But it does reflect, doesn't it, uh, a fundamental um, uh, lack of interest in diplomacy on the part of of this president? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's very evident. Uh, you don't have to look farther than his Twitter account, where he even... Which is looked, hard to miss, by the which way. Which is hard to yeah. miss. It's inflicted on all of us every day. And, <laughs> and, you know, him tweeting in the midst of Rex Tillerson's halting efforts to actually conduct diplomacy, which um, was a thing that he occasionally tried in between, uh, you know, setting fire to the State Department. And got ridiculed for it in the Twitter got, got account. Got ridiculed for it. You know, save, save your breath, Rex. You know, it's not Don't worth talk the talk to North Koreans, <laughs> yeah. ironically. Ironically, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is a, an administration that seems to have a fairly unprecedented disregard for expertise, for history, and for diplomacy. Specifically, mm-hmm. and what do you think? What do you, what will the consequences of that be? All around the world, we are already seeing a generation growing up with very overt signs of Chinese leadership and not American leadership, and that comes in multiple forms. It's the development projects that China is doubling down on, um, and the United States is withdrawing from. Uh, you know, there are dams and roads and bridges all over the world that um, are known to be Chinese projects. Mm-hmm. And America is less and less in that game. But it's not just, you know, USAID and its retreat. It's also it's our leadership in conversations around the world. China is now sending envoys to try to resolve situations in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Sudan and difficult places where there's less of a pragmatic interest for them to do so than um, there even as they're before. gaining leverage right. by, by by pursuing uh, uh, infrastructure projects and providing things that sure. these it, countries it need. would be I think uh, an oversimplification to say that they're showing moral leadership but they're coming around they're to pragmatic they're showing pragmatic leadership sure, that's for sure that's right and it's it's um, you know very cunning I mean they're they're beating us at a game that we were winning for a long time. And I think we all have to scrutinize whether that's the future we want for the world. What about the prospect, uh, uh, the increased prospect of conflict, the withdrawal from the Iran agreement? Uh, We don't know how this North Korean, uh, you know, uh, drama will end. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, Secretary Mattis, who in- interestingly is a career military uh, person, General Mattis, uh, was the guy who testified that I'm going to need a lot more weapons if you if you yes. cut the budget for diplomacy. And now he weirdly seems to be the most uh, uh, vigorous advocate for diplomacy in the administration. You know, once you're running an institution, uh, you tend to want to marshal as many resources as you can for it. Uh, and I think you lose sight of some of those broader um, critiques that he was such a... But a he but he was advocate. against, apparently, the withdrawal from the uh, Iran agreement. He was. I, look, I think it's, it's very clear that in a lot of these conversations about diplomacy, he comes off as one of the few grown-ups in the room. Um, so while this book is very much about the perils of the militarization of foreign policy on That's a personality irony, level, right, the irony is, you know, you kind of want <laughs> Mattis in the room for a lot of this. Um, yeah, I, look, the, the, the generals filling the White House right now, um, that I think overall is a malign influence, um, despite the fact that Mattis is a rare adult uh, in the current scrum. Um, the systemic impact of the Pentagon having more and more uh, autonomy to decide things like troop levels without any kind of White House oversight, um, you know, in places like Yemen and Afghanistan. Um, that overall is something that we should be concerned about. Let's get back to your uh, story and you, your, your decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we really have to. Um, listen, man, this is not meet the press, okay? This is the Axe Files. <laughs> we got to do this stuff. Um, what made you decide after you, you went, I should point out, because um, just to make people even shake their heads more, that after you left uh, the government, you decided to pick up a, 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 a doctorate 
at Oxford. Uh, just for the I hell of it. I am still a doctoral still, candidate oh, still at working Oxford, at it. David. <laughs> what, what a slacker you are. I know. I've been so distracted, and I go back every time for them to review chapters of my thesis, and they sort of— This on international development, is that where you're focused? It's uh, it's politics, mm-hmm. is the you know the name of the department, and, and it's actually a narrower band of what's in the book, the, the section on kind of— Why don't you just submit this? Armies. Can't they give you a— I wish they don't love the narrative stuff. The I see. Dons. God bless them. They, you know, they want hard analysis. And uh-huh. But damn you it, de- I'll give it to them. But you decided uh, that you were going to devote yourself to journalism. What? What? what I know you had been writing through your your teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what made you decide this is this is how I can have the greatest impact? Well, it was both something that I had been doing, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the commentary I was doing was sort of heavily reported, and I, you know, probably that comes from a deeper place of having grown up in a storytelling setting. You know, I, um, I had a flair for drama and an understanding that if you can move people with the right facts, mm-hmm. you can maybe increase awareness about things that are otherwise in the shadows. And, yeah. um, so it felt very natural to continue that. And you know, I had been doing more and more TV through the. Wall Street Journal op-eds I was doing, I would go on CNN and stuff, um, and then that led to this NBC deal. Yeah, you did a, you did a, uh, you had a, a one, a one-year stint doing a show on MSNBC. I think yeah. I was one of the early you were, guests you were, on your. You were, you were a friend of the show. show. <laughs> I hope I wasn't the one who killed it. I mean, but, it was probably your fault. Let's uh, go. With I've that. heard that. I've heard that suggested, but. Um, <laughs> But it, it, the show did not go. The show, the, and, and it struck me, uh, you are a super achiever. Uh, and this was a very uh, uh, kind of overt failure. Yeah, for and, sure. And how, how did you deal with that? It was, I mean, it was an overt ratings failure. It was critically beloved by the mm-hmm. end, you know, with the, the coverage we did during Charlie Hebdo and the long investigative stories that I was running. These it were, was good work. Yeah, they, I, I think it was well regarded amongst kind of my peers there and the correspondents who were on the show and the people writing about this stuff in the media. But look, it's a really tough slot. I mean, that was their lowest rated slot when I went into it. We kind of brought it up a little bit yeah. here and there, but, and then but it I mean, was you're 20, a bad time now, for the By business. now you're probably 26, 27. Yeah. You've had the show... People were skeptical when you got it because you were so young. I mean, at every step with everything I've done, I've faced a torrent of skepticism and and hostility. And there are worse crosses to bear than that. But it's yeah. just it's an but occupational it hazard. But when it didn't work, um, was that emotionally difficult? I mean, I, intellectually, I, I completely understand yeah. what you're saying. But it, you know, the. I wouldn't have given up that experience for anything. It taught me what I value in the news and what I don't. So, you know, when I came into that job, the proposition was, you know, use it in the way I ultimately did kind of insist on using it, which was to do long tape pieces about things like, you know, overprescription at VA hospitals. Mm-hmm. I would do these investigative stories um, and go out into the field and really kind of break news around um, you know, a, a situation as it was happening. I would go out and gather in the midst of a conflict or, uh, right. you know, something and, like and that. And NBC obviously appreciated that because they moved you over to, to the, the Today Show unit, to right. do investigative work. And I, and I guess, you know, the the failure of that show, but also of cable news and particularly midday cable news in general, I mean, that that is a business model that's in crisis still. Um, you know, you can get uh, bumps during political seasons, but mm-hmm. it's not a sustainable fix. That's a contracting market, and so you didn't take it personally. No, I mean it was very. The whole network was down, you know, a hundred and something percent mm-hmm. um, during the nadir of of our own rating stuff. It was uh, an illustration, I think, of the fact that for my generation, the headlines have become more fungible, and I think a lot of TV executives have learned the wrong lesson from the transformations in how people consume media. You know, they, I would have a lot of conversations with people who would say, okay, the kids love tweets, so let's let's just cram in shorter headlines to compete with the tweets. And I think that's like, the wrong lesson. Yeah, maybe the lesson is the kids aren't watching daytime TV on cable. They're, they're not, right. Everyone's cutting the cord. And and I think the, the thing that continues to break through, once you can get the headline on, you know, your iPod and your, your laptop and, like, you know, the LCD in your shoe <laughs> as the years go on, the long-form storytelling that really illuminates something in a deeper way still survives. Yeah. And if you look at the success of 
um, you know, narrative podcasts, things like Serial. If you mm-hmm. look at um, the still stable market of like the documentary space, um, where good work still breaks through, um, those are formats that still thrive even with the cable cutting. Had the Harvey Weinstein story come to you, Weinstein? I was uh, doing my Today Show. So I was on the Today Show, as you mentioned, right. after this for an, a couple of years and um, doing the same kind of truth to power investigative stories that I'm doing now. So I would go out and, you know, for months on end, investigate deaths and illnesses at a government nuclear site and, you know, come up with the stack of documents that showed they were covering it up and challenge Department of Energy officials about it and, you know, sneak mm-hmm. into the site and get escorted out. Um, and I was really proud of the work we were doing. I had a great producer, this guy, Rich McHugh, um, who stood by the Weinstein story um, at tremendous personal risk. Uh, and, you know, we went out and did a lot of, I think, really good work that um, got a lot of recognition. And in the course of that, I uh, was working on a story I had I had fought for uh, on the dark side of Hollywood. It was going to be, you know, multiple installments. And a lot of the stories that I had pitched uh did not end up retaining the green light. You know, I wanted to do something on race in Hollywood and um, pedophilia in Hollywood and look at, like, the Corey Feldman allegations. And um, a lot of that was deemed too dark for morning TV, but I did retain the green light on a sexual harassment in Hollywood story. And uh, the Weinstein leads came to me through that work. And uh, why didn't NBC do the story? I have said from a very early point... Um, when it became public that they suppressed the story, that I wanted to be careful about talking about the reasons for that because when you have an explosive story behind the story, I think it does risk overshadowing the allegations. And this was always about being a conduit for the stories of these women, which are still playing out in real time. You know, we, Harvey Weinstein was just indicted yesterday, mm-hmm. and um, I'm still very much trying to keep the women front and center, you know, when I, when I won that. It's also going to be, I yesterday. assume, part of your book. <laughs> like, That's I, another well, thing, right? Well, I, which is not, you know, it's not a um, flip of me to say that I, I want to save that for the right time and place. It, when you have something that is an important piece of the puzzle um, of how these stories stay quiet for as long as they sometimes do, um, you got to do justice to Let that, me just you know, ask you this question, and, and I don't want to tip yeah. your mitt, but... Uh, do you think that his power in the industry impacted on your ability to get this story on the air? Yes. Um, okay, I know I, I, that's probably about as much as I'm going to get from you on that. <laughs> but, you know, I was interested in uh, people, you're a very composed guy, um, but you've been very frank. You gave a, a, a commencement speech at Loyola Marymount. Uh, in which you talked about the reality of doing this, it is hard to go to, to go up against powerful people and powerful interests. And you told this one great story when you were in a taxi cab, and you're talking yeah. to your partner John Lovett, yeah. who is uh, a great friend of mine yeah. and some, a former colleague of mine. And you were sobbing because of the pressure uh, that you were under. Uh, on this particular story, which you continued to report and ultimately published in The New Yorker. Talk about that. I mean, I had lost my career in television. Um, I refused to stop reporting the story, and you know, my next deal had gone away. I had moved out of my apartment because I was getting staked out and threatened. Um, I thought I was going to get scooped. Uh, you know, I had lost my book deal. I, this book that you have here and we're talking about now is... Um, a small miracle because it was rescued from the brink um, by Norton, a wonderful publisher. Um, but at the time, I really thought I may have swung too wide and would just lose everything I had worked for. And the point of that speech was to say, it, it's all very well and good in retrospect to say, look at this great thing and how great it turned out. But at the time, you don't know if you're doing any of it for the right reasons or is it is it your ego and your desire to see yourself as kind of the hero in your own story and you you don't know whether uh it will be received as the important story you think it is um I, that particularly was a concern to me because i had spent so long in rooms with executives telling me like it's not a story it's not a story it's never going to be a story and um it really did require a leap of faith and it didn't feel strategic and i wasn't sure it was the right thing and i'm just 
so grateful that I, I guess I listened to the gut feeling that I couldn't let down those women. And uh, the, the greatest part of that story was you're in this cab, you're <laughs> sobbing, and, uh, and what John gave you this very, I think, uh, good piece of advice. What was the piece of advice he gave you? <laughs> he, said, he said, you know, I'm wailing about, oh, my God, I'm going to get scooped, and no one will ever know I worked on this, and it's all, you know, and I, I'm losing everything, and it was too big a gamble. And he's like, okay, we're going to deal with all of that. But also, you're going to tip this taxi driver really well. <laughs> Which is perfect. That's like love it, man. That's yeah, a, a, yeah. a perfect love it story. <laughs> so uh, the story got published in The New Yorker. As you point out, you were under competitive pressures because The New York Times, some great reporters there, uh, uh, Jody Canner, Megan Tui, were working yeah, on this piece as well. Yeah, they did fantastic work. Um, how did you feel? And I know you wrote a little bit about this in The New Yorker when you saw Harvey Weinstein uh, escorted out of that uh, cop house, uh, handcuffed and put into a, uh, into a limousine? You know, I get asked that a lot, David, and the, the honest answer is I don't know that I felt anything. Um, partly that was just a practical matter because I was immediately pulled into turning out the, the piece on the behind-the-scenes story of how the investigators pursued these charges. And you know, going back to this very which, brave by, woman. Which had something to do with your piece. They, they, there was a name in your piece uh, who turned out to be of a woman who turned out to be a central character yes. in this case. So what happened was, you know, we ran this story and the, the very first allegation in that story was from a young woman named Lucia Evans who did a very brave thing speaking about it. And it was tough for her, but she wanted to support these other women and was obviously very credible or she wouldn't have been in that story. Um, and the police had the same reaction. And the day after the story ran, the NYPD cold case squad, uh, you know, approached her and said, you should tell this story on the stand as well. And that's a wrenching decision to make because for her, it means potentially years of getting smeared and torn apart on the stand and having her credibility attacked. Um, and I, I think the fact that she has decided to go ahead with that is a real act of public service. For you, uh, the things that followed, I mean, could, did you have a sense that when you published this piece that it would spawn the kind of movement that we've seen? I don't know that anyone could have anticipated the bravery of so many survivors in industry after industry, women and now men as well. Uh, I certainly knew that there was a deep vein of untold stories here, and I knew that um, there were systems in place that had suppressed those stories for a long time. And I guess I was so in crisis <laughs> trying to break the thing that I didn't think about the long-term cultural repercussions. Because it's pro it, is an, it is as much a parable of the power of good investigative journalism as anything I can think of in recent times. I mean, you, you could go back to Woodward and Bernstein, but it, uh, it really has changed things in a, in a uh, demonstrable way. I hope so. I spent a year living in the worst memories of woman after brave woman, and uh, that's a, you know, a, a very difficult place to be, and it certainly fills me with the desire that they be heard and that we never go back to a culture of silence. You must have had discussions with your sister, Dylan, about the work that you were doing and since. Um, how, did, how did she react to all of this? Uh, she was angry, which is interesting and I think understandable. She came forward. There was a great um, article by I think Kate Arthur and BuzzFeed a few years ago, tracing kind of the early unfolding of this movement before it was known as the Me Too movement and these, these forces had all linked up to turn into this watershed moment. Um, and she talked about, you know, Hannibal Buress cracking that joke about Cosby um, and the Cosby women beginning to come forward uh, and, and the turning point of my sister coming forward sort of in that same time frame and how that was a catalyst for people talking about this issue. And one of the Weinstein accusers, Rose McGowan, the actress, mm -hmm. commented on my sister being too soon. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which is a fascinating observation. I mean, I, I think she was just as, you know, Gretchen Carlson talking about Fox was a part of this the sort of lineage of this moment. Um, I do think my sister doing a really brave thing and enduring a, uh, an unimaginable smear campaign as a result, and my mother getting a lot of the brunt of it too, as we mentioned, uh, that was an indispensable part of the history of this moment. Do you, you say she was angry. Do you feel, does she feel that Woody Allen should have been standing where Harvey Weinstein was standing? Well, that, so that's what I mean by angry. I think she saw the kind of the vindication of so many of these women's stories and then saw the very different reaction, you know, that she got, I think partly because of just the moment in time. You know, you look at the reaction that the Bill Cosby accusers got, and it was also, um, you know, equal parts angry op-eds from mostly male fans saying, you know, these women are trying to tear down an icon. Um, and then sort of the, the few people saying, hey, maybe there's something here. And I think we were still very much in that moment when she spoke out. Um, look, I've never said believe all survivors. I've said listen to all survivors and interrogate their claims thoroughly. And for anyone like my sister, who has a you know, very credible claim backed by a lot of evidence, I mean, we're talking about like his hair fibers being there in the spot she said they would be even after he lied and said he had never been there. I mean, um, just create and eyewitness accounts of babysitter who saw him performing a sex so it act. It sounds like you feel stuff. like he, he should have been prosecuted. Um, I, yes, I think that, you know, you look at what happened in that situation and there was an active intimidation campaign um, directed at all of the law enforcement involved. Um, and it, this crazy thing that would never happen today of, you know, a psychological report being issued by these Yale New Haven investigators who um, met, met with him and his lawyers repeatedly, never met with the victim, um, not even once, mm-hmm. and destroyed all their notes afterwards. I mean, it was, the whole thing smells really bad, you know, just as an investigative reporter when you look back on it. And I think I understand her being angry. You know, this the conversations afterwards were complicated because I think she was proud of what I had done, but, you know, still very much in her own painful fight. Ronan, you, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, this is a truism, I guess, but you're sitting here and you're telling me that your dad uh, should have been prosecuted for a, a really heinous like the most heinous kind There's of a, crime. But it's not. It's not a. Uh, but I mean, that's. But it's that's not heavy a, stuff, man. But it's not an extreme statement factually, because remember no, I know. that the prosecutor. I'm not asking about that. I'm not. I'm not challenging. But this, it's an important what I'm point. A, I mean, but the, I'm asking you about how you case, how one feels. This is a rare, rare case, David, where the uh, the prosecutor himself came forward and said, "We should have pressed charges." Yeah, yeah, no. You know, I, this is, I, I'm I'm asking you how you feel about that. You know, I don't have a strong emotional feeling about it. I think, you know, because I was young at the time, because I wasn't really exposed to the fact pattern one way or the other until I kind of approached it as an adult, and then did realize, by the way, that everything that I had seen as a child rang true with her account of events. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it's an incredibly painful uh, story. But I think it's all of our responsibilities to be willing to um, see the facts as they are, no matter your connection to them. Yeah. And uh, no matter how much of a fan you are of someone, or if someone is, you know, your, your father, you, I don't know, man, fathers, are, that's, that's, that, as I said, that's heavy stuff. And, it, and I mean, perhaps, look, perhaps one has do I, to, do compa- I wish that it weren't the case? Of, of but, course. But, but perhaps one has to compartmentalize in order to deal with those. Uh, sure. And I'm sure there's some of that going on. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know that I have an emotional relationship with it, other than feeling for him. Yeah, for him, I, I think that I, I have you know an, an emotional connection with my sister's story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really was able to. Maybe you're right. Up, you know, it would require a better shrink than I to to assess. For but, me, for for by the but way, but you may be right that that one of the reasons I was able to approach this as dispassionately as I, I have is because I compartmentalized it in some way. Um, but I do. One, one would not uh, penalize you for that, by the way. <laughs> well, but, it was the only. You know, I because I was getting asked in such a public way to comment on it at the time that I did review that evidence and, and look back at it. 
I had no choice but to try to be as rigorous as possible. And that's just, you know, maybe that's an emotional failing, but it's also just my tendency as a person. You know, I'm an attorney. I'm an investigative reporter. I, I am going to look at things in a kind of uh, as dispassionate a way as I can. Yeah. That said, I've never, I've never claimed to be a thir- you know, an impartial third-party observer. Everything that I've said about this, I've said with the caveat of, like, this is, this is my family. And um, I'm writing this partly as a, you know, when I wrote that one, I've only ever written on the subject once in this Hollywood Reporter piece that I was kind of cornered into writing. Um, you know, I, I said up front, like, I'm, I'm writing this as a brother as well. Mm-hmm. War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence, Ronan Farrow, an important book. Uh, you've got another one coming up called Catch and Kill, which mm-hmm. is uh, a guaranteed bestseller I'm, uh, without having even seen it. And you've dropped enough hints here <laughs> as to why people are going to want to buy that book. And you've signed on to do documentaries for HBO. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, just just a, a word on that. I came out of this experience of uh, investigative reporting at NBC with a lot of incredible producers and uh, you know diggers for the truth uh, on that investigative unit there. Uh, realizing the importance of having greater independence from a corporate structure um, that controls editorial content. And I believe I've found that in HBO. And, you know, we're starting the development process on that now. It's a ways out. But I was shockingly, after the low point of this process with the Weinstein story, where I really did think I had lost my career, was then suddenly in a position where I could kind of have my pick of platforms and after talking to the team at HBO, I really felt like this was the place I could go deepest and uh, be the most uncensored about the truth. Well, let me say that um, I will forgive you as everyone else will who hears this podcast for making us all feel uh, so inadequate uh, as mere mortals. Uh, but uh, I'm in awe of the work that you've done, and we all owe you a great debt of gratitude for the incredible work that you did on on the story that I think has changed America, that maybe the world. a lot to hear. It, you know, I, I was fortunate to be a conduit for some very brave women and their stories, and um, I'm going to keep going. i got to get back to the office now to keep cranking out the next one. All right, brother, get going. Thanks, David. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.